Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 37. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 37. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. good to see you, and it's good to see you on this last Sunday of 2018. That's crazy if you think about it. No, it's not crazy. I guess it's normal. It's just amazing that we got to spend a full year together, and now we're finishing off uh, today in worship. Uh, we didn't do an Advent series. We're not going to do um, a vision series after this, and the reason why is because I really felt that God was calling our church to be faithful in the exegesis of the books that we're going through. And we went through Exodus before, and now going through Matthew, and we saw the correlation. But we saw that as we were faithful in going through these books, that it actually did speak to us in our very lives, in the state that we were living in, showing us that God's word is faithful, and it's true no matter who you are, as long as we continue to trust and lean on him. Uh, that being said, we're going to continue on the series of Matthew today as well. And I was thinking, wow, this is going to be a tough one. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, the next thought I had was, it's truly a great one to end the year on. I, I literally wrote that. It's like, wow, what a great passage to end 2018 on. But in faithfulness, we started Matthew. And we, in faithfulness, we want to continue and finish the Gospel of Matthew. We want to go through every line, and we, want to, we don't want to skip anything just because it might be a little difficult. And I'm going to tell you right now, this passage is difficult, whether you are married, whether you are not married. And I want us to know that because it is difficult, we should go to God first. So let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our first point today is the law. What is the law? What's so important about the law? And I have a slide for you, if you could put that first slide up there. This is by the late R.C. Sproul. And he said this, if you can't read it, it's cool, I'm going to read it for you. Yesterday, a man I met for the first time asked me 
And what is the Lord doing in your life? Something about how he asked the question, the tone of his voice, and his manner in it disturbed me. The manner of asking was a bit too casual, as if the utterance was mechanical. I suppressed my annoyance and answered as if the question were sincere. I said, he is impressing upon me the beauty and sweetness of his law. The man obviously was not prepared for my answer. He looked at me as though I was from another planet. He visibly recoiled from my words as if, it, if I was weird for uttering them. And so what is the law? You know, we are living in an era that the law of God isn't really given much attention, either by secularists or even by Christians. The law we assume is a relic of the past, part of the Judeo-Christian history, and it has no abiding relevance to our current Christian life. What that means is if we really think that, that means we are living out in practice antinomian heresy. Now I want you to listen very clearly about what I'm saying. If we don't think the law has anything to do with us, and then we just live out whatever way we want because we think this is the time of grace, this is antinomian heresy. I'm going to explain to you exactly what antinomianism is in case you may not be familiar. Literally, antinomianism means against the law. Antinomianism means against the law. It's a centuries-old heresy whose basic tenet was that Christians were not bound by traditional moral law, and particularly of the Old Testament. Instead, a person could be guided by this inner light, what you feel. And if I feel this is right, then that is what guides me. And that would reveal what proper conduct was. So a Gallup survey that was done started revealing a trend in our culture. And according to this Gallup poll, there is evidence that seems to indicate that behavioral patterns from Christians and non-Christians are almost indistinguishable today. Behavioral patterns from Christians and non-Christians are almost indistinguishable. We use terms, if you're a Christian and you grew up in the church, we use terms like the term hypocrite. Hypocrite because we say like, oh, we're all holy, but as soon as you leave the doors, you do something completely different from what you did today. Hypocrisy means that we really care about what other people think. And I'm talking to the church now. If I was talking to someone outside the church, I would say hypocrisy in a different light so that they would understand when they call the church a hypocrite, what they're really doing is also hypocrisy. But hypocrisy for us, and I want us to understand it as a church, means we really care so much about what other people think that I will act a certain way. And then in another place, I will act another way. And it's all about people. It's about what other people think. And so now we don't even care. And so one of the biggest things in Revelations is when I was a youth pastor, and I would talk to other youth pastors, 
and we would share about how amazing it was, amazing, when we saw these youth students in church or at a retreat completely blessed. Some of you came back from the retreat, good job. Uh, it's really hard work to do a retreat. I'm not knocking on retreats. I'm talking about our culture today, just as a caveat. I'm letting you know that. But whatever, in church or at a retreat, they would have this, this culture, this showing, oh, I've been blessed. But immediately when they would go to school, it would be completely different. Their language would change. The way they talk to one another would change. And a youth pastor once went in disguise to a school, and they were shocked, shocked that a youth leader would talk and act the way they did in school, when in church they acted completely different. On stage, they were completely different. And I am saying what that is, is you are practically living out this heresy called antinomianism. Law has nothing to do with me. Maybe you don't think it, maybe you don't think you believe it, but you practice it. Meaning, whatever I do here is because it's church, you know, I dress nice, but once I go outside, out of my mouth comes filth and things of that nature. What everybody else is doing seems to be the ethical norm. Meaning, what, what guiding principle do we have? It's what other people are doing. That is hypocrisy. So let's put aside the terminology of law for now. Let's just, because you may have some baggage about it, laws, uh, you know, Pastor Eugene, so law, whatever. And so let's put aside whatever baggage you may have. And what my contention is, is that there has to be still some sort of moral, transcendent, absolute, when we deal with each other. I used a harder word, perhaps. Maybe I should just use law. So there is a law that we have to have when we deal with each other. There has to be some kind of transcendent, moral code, or absolute, when we deal with each other. Otherwise, otherwise, what's, what is it otherwise? It's chaos otherwise. You know, more and more in our culture today, we want judges that don't apply objective moral truth to their judgments, but we want them to appeal to contemporary culture. You know why? We want judges and everybody flips out if someone isn't someone that appeals to contemporary culture. Because we believe that we know better. Don't you see? We think we know better than every other generation and centuries of history before us. We obviously know better. Our culture is obviously more superior. So that's why law should reflect our current culture. There is objective moral truth. There is a transcendent moral absolute. There is law that goes from generation to generation that must be kept. And even in our country, we do believe that. At least the founding fathers did when they wrote the Bill of Rights. But there is something even bigger than the Bill of Rights. What happens when we honestly believe this contemporary culture is superior to every other culture behind us? You know what they say, 2020 vision is hindsight. Hindsight is 2020. Uh, but we never think to realize, wait, we might be wrong in our assessment when we think contemporarily. 
You know the three-fifths compromise? Do you guys remember this in history? Uh, three-fifths compromise is, was because of taxation. It was economics. But what it did was it made a non-white man or a slave uh, three-fifths of a man. That is horrible. That is terrible. That is evil. But you know what? It's in the Constitution. It's in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3 of the United States Constitution. And you know why it was made? Because it reflected contemporary culture. We don't live by contemporary culture. We march to a beat of a different drummer. Our drummer is in contemporary culture, and this is what I'm trying to convey to you. This is why the law is good. When we say God's law is good, when we look at verses like this, what is our initial reaction? Is it like, ah, it's past 2,000 years ago. What does he know? It's about today. We know better. What kind of attitude do we have when we really think that? And why is the law of God good? Because it reflects God's character. Why is the law of God good? Because it reflects who he is. I'm going to put up another slide for you. That's, this is by the reformer John Calvin. And John Calvin wrote this. In giving a summary of what constitutes the true knowledge of God, we show that we cannot form any just conception of the character of God without feeling overawed by his majesty and bound to do him service. When we study God and when we see that the law of God reflects his character, we are overawed by his majesty. And this is why we want to give him service. You know what service isn't just like cleaning stuff. This is service right now. This is what we mean. We give him worship. And this is why when we see standards that are being reflected in the Bible, excuse me, this is why when we see law given to us, we must not, again, I'm going to tell you, we must not fall into the temptation of lowering the standards of God that God has set for his people. We must not fall into that temptation. Imagine there is this bar. And this bar is as high as the ceiling. And you had to jump over this bar without any help. Like, that's impossible. Pastor Eugene, that's impossible. You guys ever see, uh, like, Indiana Jones movies? I don't know. It might be too old for the millennials. But Indiana Jones and these kind of cool movies, um, when, I went to, when, I went to, when I was traversing the desert, I would just sing the theme song of Indiana Jones. I'd be like, dun, 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 dun. And I'd just like walk around in the train. The train looked like it was from an uh, Indiana Jones set. And then I would walk to the bathroom, my camcorder, and I would sing, dun, 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 dun. And then I would open the toilet, and then the toilet was just a big hole onto the railroad tracks, and I would stop, dun, dun, dun. No, no, that's no good. <laughs> that's crazy. What is going on here? But in a lot of these movies, there's like the enclosing walls like the death trap and the walls start closing and then you're like how do I get out and this is what we have to imagine what sin has done to us is we're going to die and it's closing in and the only way to get out is jump out of the trap and jump the bar is that high 
meaning that's how far you have to jump. If I lower that bar and I go, I'm going to take this bar because this is impossible. You know, I look at you. You're not going to jump over this bar as athletic as you are. So I'm going to lower this bar. I'm going to lower it right here about this high, yay high. And you can jump over it. And you'd be like, yay, I jumped over the bar. You're still dead because the wall's still closing is my point. So we don't lower the bar. If the Bible sets the bar that high, it's because that's the truth. That's what reality is. You know, the word of God isn't simply a moral code. The word of God, I want to show us, is that it is the lens by which we are to see life. The world that's out there isn't reality, or at least a sustainable one. Reality is if life matches with what's in the book. That's why it's imperative that the church, God's people, this place right now, we reflect reality. Out there, yes, there is chaos. There is group versus group versus group to no end. But in here, we have to hold on to the promise that God's favor rests on this place, on his people, and he gives us peace. The church must be the beacon that reflects the true reality of Christ's lordship. But the sinful nature in us, when we come to passages like this, is to ask, what's the exception? There has to be an exception, Pastor Eugene. I, I get it, I get it. Here, we should be reality, but I live out there. What's the exception? And that's exactly what the Pharisees ask Jesus in chapter 19. The heart that asks for the exception isn't a heart in line with the will of God. God's will for us is what we call the normative pattern. The normative pattern, okay? In this culture, we, however, don't, do not celebrate normative patterns. We celebrate mutations. We love mutants. We write comics about mutants, about their superpowers. But the reality is mutations can kill you. Cancer is caused by genetic mutations on top of other mutations. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the healthiest you could be <coughs> is if you didn't have any abnormalities or mutations. You may love mutants, but mutants are not normative. Mutations in your body kill you. They do not give you superpowers. We can imagine that they would. I would love to have one of the mutant superpowers. You could ask and we could have a whole discussion. Which mutant superpower would you like to have? But that's not normative. You know what? God created the world and he said it was good. That means it's the best. And he ordered the world. He loves his creation. And don't you think then, by going by this logic, it's reasonable God created, in creation there's order, and God loves his creation, then he would give us his laws for creation's flourishing. He wants us to flourish. That's why we have the law. Then we should joyfully and happily apply and put on the lens of the word of God. Let's go to today's verse then. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife 
let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we start off in this passage, and when Jesus goes, it is also said. So also means it's directly correlated to the passage before. What was the passage right before? It was leading from lust. So this is connected. Lust, adultery. Pastor Paul gave a great sermon on anger and lust. And he and I were talking. He's like, which, which hard one do you want? And I said, Pastor Paul, you should take uh, the divorce one because that's really rough. <laughs> anyway, I ended up with this. But... Um, <laughs> So he, did a, he had a great message. Uh, I praise God for that. And uh, it's leading from lust. It's connected. But where do they think they got this teaching from? About this giving away of the certificate or divorce? Or where do they, at least, do they think they got it from? And this is from actually Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. And if we could put that up there, it reads like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That is an incredibly long run-on sentence. And that is because it's showing us something. Look at all these conditions. Look at all these conditions. And does it say God permits? Does it say anywhere in these verses God permits? Doesn't it just say when a man does this, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. There is no affirmation of divorce here, unlike the teachers before Jesus taught. In Matthew 19, Jesus says this more specifically, because of the hardness of your hearts, that this was even allowed. What does that mean? Divorce was not a part of God's original design. So the permissible grounds for divorce were debated. It was hotly debated in the school of Shammai, in the school of uh, Hillel, and all these Jewish schools. They would, they, would, they would debate these things. And today, we would even see that too among churches. <clears throat> and they go, oh, if, if a wife does this, then it's grounds. Or if a man does this, then it's grounds. And what people were living by during Jesus' time they were living by, or the practice was governed by the school of Hillel. And this is what the school of Hillel took. Um, if a wife did something and the husband has a complaint, then he can issue a certificate of divorce. So what? What kind of complaint? Anything. Even burning dinner. So there is actual written evidence that even burning the dinner was grounds for divorce. That means no court decision was required. Only one unilateral action by the husband 
would be grounds for divorce. Now, now, now we think of it in our age. We think that, we, some of us may think that's ridiculous. Hopefully all of us think it. But, like, but some of us may think, this is ridiculous. How can that be? But now one of our top reasons for divorce today, I kid you not, is weight gain. And they would reason that out. You know why? It's not just about weight gain. It's about intimacy. I'm going to put intimacy in quotes. Intimacy. But if we're real with ourselves, what's guiding our decisions? It's emotion. It's feeling. Our primary driver for this incredible decision is emotion. That's why we desperately need gospel truth to penetrate our lives so that when we are making these life-altering decisions, it's not simply on personal emotion. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? The point that Jesus is making and affirming is that marriage, I want you to hear this, marriage is much, much bigger than a man and a woman getting together. Marriage symbolizes the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is not about you. We're going to go on to the next verses. Because it says, again, you have heard. So they're all correlated, the lust, the divorce, and now oaths. They're all put together. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Does this mean do not take any oaths at all? Of course not. Of course not. It doesn't mean that. We just talked about marriage where you take literally an oath, a lifelong oath bond between a man and a woman. Priests were required to make people take oaths in like places like Numbers 5. But swearing was doing something. It was done on something. So when you would swear, you would say, I swear by heaven or I swear by earth, or this thing on earth. I swear by the holy city of CGS. The people will do this kind of swearing. So Jesus is saying, how can you put an oath and swear when you don't even own any of it? When I was younger, people would say, I swear on my mother's grave. And oh my gosh, Eugene must be serious then. He's swearing on his mother's grave, right? And Jesus is saying, you can't even make one hair on your head, white or black, let alone have control over your mother's life or death. Why are you swearing by that? Why are you making an oath by your mother's grave? Because when we make a promise by our own power, we are hopelessly fragile. Just say yes or no. You should know that as a child of God, 
that your yeses and nos shows the kind of person you are because when you say yes or no, it's showing who you trust in, who you believe in, who you love. Are you hearing me? When you say yes or no to something, it shows who you are, who you trust in, who you love. So why do we swear at all? Why do we swear? So Jesus is alluding to the dishonesty of the heart. He's alluding to the dishonesty of the human heart. Our souls are radically corrupted. We want to lie and not keep our oaths and promises. Oh, I don't have to keep that promise because I didn't swear. Do you remember that when you were younger? You may have done that. Oh, I, 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 did, I did swear. I actually did swear, but I had my fingers crossed. Um, there is a movie called The Truman Show where the protagonist finds out his wife wasn't sincere about her marriage to him because he saw in their wedding picture she had her fingers crossed. What are we, five years old? I was like, seriously, when I'm watching this, are we five years old? What is this? But we want to lie and cheat and not keep our promises because not keeping it, we think it will benefit me. Or if I keep it, it's going to inconvenience me. And Jesus says, let your yeses be yes. When you say yes, you're not putting your trust and faith in me anymore. As a child of God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, when you say yes or no, your faith and your trust is in God. Keep your oaths. Marriage is a commitment to God that you will stay together for better or for worse. Deacons and elders, if you are a deacon or elder in this church, you made an oath to God and his people to serve this church. Deacons, you have made an oath to protect the church's unity and to serve the poor, the people on the margins of this community. Elders, you have made an oath to protect the church's doctrines. It's a commitment to the truth of God's word from any false teachings or teachers that would shepherd and try to take people away. You have made an oath, elder, to pray for every single one of our members. And if an intruder were to come to your house, the head of the household is to jump out to protect his family. Keep your oaths. But hearing this, it just seems impossible. It's impossible. It's 2018. We're in New York, Jersey, wherever. Perhaps you feel that in your current state that it's impossible, or at least it feels impossible. But I assure you it is not. Look, I didn't say it wouldn't be difficult. I didn't say it wouldn't be difficult, but it is not impossible. How can you say that then, you may ask? How can you say that with such a broad range and be so sure that it's not impossible? What about this person's situation? What about that person's situation? I didn't assure it. Jesus did. In his great commission, Jesus commissioned his disciples to make more disciples, teaching them to obey everything Jesus taught them. And he assures them that he will be with them to the end of the age. Not only that, he sends us his Holy Spirit to help. So what does this mean specifically for us? 
If you are single, I want you to listen. If you are single, covenant relationship should be fleshing itself out with your brothers and sisters here. The question I have for you is, are you pouring yourself out to the church or is it all about you? Have you covenanted yourself to the people here? Have you covenanted yourself to God? Have you covenanted yourself with Jesus? Because even marriage is pointing to Christ and his church, and you literally have a church right here. If you are married, listen to me. If you are married, it will be work. You are two sinners living under the same roof. With your husband and your wife, have you brought the idea of covenantal faithfulness in discussion? What it means to have covenantal faithfulness. What it means to reconcile. I'm going to tell you this. If you don't think I can relate or other people in this church can relate, I'm going to say this. Another general, I'm going to take a broad swath and swipe again. No one's marriage, no one's marriage, if a scale, if there was a scale of marriage of 1 to 10 plus, and 10 plus meaning, meaning you're always dancing and giddy and giggling all the time, no one's marriage is a 10 plus. No one's marriage is a 10 plus. And I want you to say that when you, like, if your spouse is next to you uh, or you're going to go home and see your spouse, say it out loud. Our marriage is not a 10 plus. It's not. That's reality. It's not. It's just not. I want you to say it out loud, but I don't want you to just stop there. I want you to let us pray for you. Let us pray for you. For others, it's more serious. You keep going back to the same arguments over and over and over again. You don't have the same feelings that you had, that you really want, and you believe that you need. And I want to encourage you now. Let us pray for you. Let us pray for you. And I also want to encourage you to sign up for the upcoming six-week marriage Sunday school that we have. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. It's by Tim and Kathy Keller. And I want to also tell you that this particular one is so good for our culture today and the way we live. I'm opening it up to both married and single people. It's just a short six-week seminar. And we're going to come here together. Number three, you came today and your marriage was burned. It was destroyed. It was annihilated. Then I'm going to tell you this. Come and be prayed for. Come and be prayed for. Get biblical counseling. What will get in your way from doing these things? Pride. Pride will get in the way. Now, I was talking with uh, someone who is off campus, meaning not here, and they were having a little rough time uh, finding, you know, people. It's, it's crazy how many dating apps there are, so I kind of joke around what dating app do you use. And I have no idea about these newer dating apps. There are so many. 
Uh, I thought like coffee meets bagel was it, but that's old news now. There are tons of other ones. And um, <clears throat> it's all about swiping down, up, left, right, or whatever it is, right? Um, and we would talk and say, like, what, what characteristics should I look for in someone that I, that I would want to you know, be serious with? And I, I, I said straight up, teachability. Teachability. Does this person have teachability? If this person has teachability, that's a quality and characteristic that is incredibly rare in today's society. Everybody thinks they know everything. Everybody's stubborn. What that equates to is pride. We're so prideful. When we come up to passages like this, some of us immediately, kum, 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 kum. there's walls. Trump could take, no, I'm just like, uh, there are walls out there. And it's incredible. Um, I'm sorry for making a joke on such a serious thing. I, I definitely will get in trouble after. But what will get in your way ultimately? It's pride. Let go of the pride. Your pride is going to continue to kill you. And you're not going to be happy. God wants you to flourish. Don't you see the law is for our flourishing. He wants us to be joyful. He loves his creation. He created us and said this is good. And so he gave us guidelines. This is how you continue to be good and how you continue to flourish. So what's going to get in the way? It's pride saying I know better than God. This is old stuff. This is old. I don't want to listen to this. Be teachable. Be humble. I don't care if a single person led this six-week course. Take it. Let us pray for you. Let us pray for you. Please quit pretending to be happy and get to work fixing. Here's a final word. If you are hopeless or defeated or even perhaps angry and bitter and raging inside. Let that go. What Jesus has to offer you is far greater than what you are clinging on to so tightly. Knowing the hopelessness of our situation, he came to this earth a baby boy. He lived the perfect life, perfectly living up to the standards of God and his law. He was truly the light that shone in the darkness. But for our sin, our hopeless wretchedness, he died on a cross, a most humiliating death anyone could die. He died to take on our sin and the hopelessness that you feel and put it on himself. And then he would take that and put it on himself and he would take off his perfection and his hope and put it on us. Don't you see? Jesus gave you his hope. Jesus gave you his perfection. It's a gift and promise, an oath from God that you are now his he will see you through the dark valley. Only this, place your trust in him. Let him lead you. Oh Jesus, lead your church. And on this final Sunday, we commit 
ourselves into your hands. Let's pray.